Welcome to McKinsey on Startups, a series focused on helping entrepreneurs and investors accelerate growth, brought to you by Fuel, the firm's startup practice. Each episode, McKinsey editor Daniel Eisenberg speaks with founders, investors, and industry experts to share the latest perspectives across borders and sectors. Hello, and welcome to McKinsey on Startups. I'm Daniel Eisenberg. In the past two decades, as technology and startups have radically reshaped our daily lives and the global economy, Europe could be forgiven for wondering if this new moment might pass the continent by. Europe is still, of course, a global economic power, but slowing growth and a relative lack of innovation have contributed to a significant reduction in the continent's share of the global economy. In fact, its share of global market cap and profits has dropped by half from roughly a third to around 15%. The entrepreneurial deficit is a major area of concern as Europe contemplates its future economic and technological competitiveness. Both its number of startups and those that go on to become unicorns has significantly lagged its global peers such as the US. A range of explanations has been posited for this disparity, from regulation or talent to a risk-averse culture or a fragmented value pool. In just the last few years, however, there have been some encouraging signs that the tide is starting to turn. Greater amounts of foreign and domestic venture capital have flowed into both early and later stage startups to help close the funding gaps, and the pace and number of unicorns being created has accelerated. For both aspiring entrepreneurs and investors, the recent momentum raises the question of what exactly it takes to become a European tech champion. A team at McKinsey recently examined that issue in a report, Winning Formula, How Europe's Top Tech Startups Get It Right. The groundbreaking research looked at the top 1,000 European startups founded after 2000 in 33 countries. Today, we are joined by two co-authors of that report. Kim Baruti is a senior partner based in McKinsey's Copenhagen office, who leads the firm's technology, media, and telecommunications practice in Europe. Jaap Friesendorf is an associate partner in McKinsey's Amsterdam office, who leads Fuel, McKinsey's startup practice in the Benelux region. Kim, Jaap, thanks so much for joining us on the podcast today. Thanks for having us. Thanks. Kim, let's start by talking about the tech sector broadly. We know it's been booming globally over the last few years. But what does it look like in Europe these days? Thanks um, for this highly relevant and interesting question. If you look at Europe as a region 20 years ago, we represented roughly a third of the global economy, a third of the market cap and almost a third of the global profits. And we actually had a little bit above fair share of the top 100 companies in the world. If we then fast forward to this year, the picture looks very different. So first of all, we represent one fourth of the global economy um, due to slower growth rates than India, China, and others. Um, But it's interesting to see that we only represent roughly 15% of global market cap and profits. And if we double click on that number, the reason why we are losing not only relatively on macro or even more so on companies is actually the lack of global technology champions. So if you look at North America and China specifically, they have produced outsized number of companies, but also size of companies that are producing significant profits and as a result, market cap um, to investors. So although we all get excited around the fantastic growth and momentum in Europe. I think over a 20-year horizon, unfortunately, we have seen Europe lose relevance and size uh, 
mainly due to the lack of technology leadership companies. Right. And I assume this challenge that you just outlined, is that what spurred your decision to take an in-depth look at the European startup scene and, and the success factors and such? Absolutely. I think McKinsey and Company has always been thought leaders for large institutions and incumbents and attackers. But when we look at this picture of losing relevance as a European region, uh, that is obviously a flag that we would like to at least attend to. But I think even more important, when we discuss uh, internally in McKinsey, we actually believe that the world needs some sort of balance and Europe needs to have at least fair share of the companies and the solutions. Because if we don't, then we will have to accept the fantastic solutions and companies that are being produced in predominantly, of course, North America and China, but also beyond. So we have to accept the solutions. They come with to some of the biggest and most prominent problems of the world, but also the values those companies bring to the table. If Europe should have a seat at the table to basically produce the values and the business logics and business models to some of the most important problems, could it be climate change, healthcare, and so forth, we will have to actually up the ante and produce leaders, not only within countries, within Europe, but also at a global scale. So that's why we initiated this, to come up with, I would say, a cookbook of course, some insights and transparency, but even more so a cookbook for companies for how to scale and become global champions. Yeah, let's dig into that cookbook a little. In your recent research, you looked at the top 1,000 startup companies in Europe, the tech champions, as you named them in the article and the report. What specifically drove this approach to the study and what were the key insights and findings? I think what we try to do is take a data-driven approach to solving the problem of what makes great European companies great. And what we did uh, in order to uh, solve that riddle is build a very large database. <laughs> so we spent nine months uh, creating a very coherent and structured database in order to look at the top thousand companies founded since 2000. And, and when we looked at those companies, we weren't very hypothesis driven as we normally are, but we took a little bit of a different approach and, and said, what will the data tell us about the success of these companies? And in a way that was very enlightening because what came out were three very interesting insights. The first one is that when we look at the top thousands, that there are four very distinct roads to success. So there were a part of the companies that took a network approach to scaling. There was companies that took a product approach, a deep tech approach, or a skilled approach. And they all had their own characteristics regarding revenue growth, employees, and other similar markers. The second thing we found is that for each of these different roads to success, there are different success factors. Some categories of companies over-indexed on commercial roles, some of these companies had a successful approach to M&A, and some of these companies took an initial product hook. And the third thing is around funding. So we got a lot of feel and also science to what it takes to become big. What does it take to become unicorn in terms of funding requirements? And it obviously differs very much across these four archetypes of companies described. 
but it also gave a sense of what you need to put in in order to get back. And I think those are the three main insights that we got from the uh, research we did. Can you explain in a little more detail the four different plays and, and sort of the, the success factors for each? Yes, very happy to. So the first strategic play that we found is the network play. These are companies that become more valuable as they gain users. And network effects, these companies drive product adoption and users to become the winning platforms. These are often marketplaces, mobility players, social media startups such as uh, Deliveroo and Peer. That's the first one we uh, saw. The second one we saw was more skill players. They achieve early sales growth to reach critical size in economies of scale. They are frequently e-commerce companies, consumer companies, or media companies. Examples are Spotify, for instance, or Zalando, the fashion and lifestyle marketplace. Then we have product players, the third category. They prioritize developing superior products and outstanding customer experience that are very distinct and have a competitive advantage. These are usually B2B SaaS companies or fintechs, such as uh, N26, for instance, or software companies like Personio. And the last strategic play that we saw is a deep tech play, which is really focusing on research and development early on to commercialize scientific breakthrough. These are generally companies that work on artificial intelligence, hardware, biotech, or healthcare. Uh, and include examples such as Lilium or GraphCore. And Kim, coming back to these four primary paths to success, the network, the scale, the product, and the deep tech, how can this kind of insight help other entrepreneurs in Europe as they you know, plot their strategy and, and attempt to scale their way to unicorn status one day? It was actually a bit of a surprise to us, uh, I must say. We obviously talked to a lot of founders. We talked to a lot of uh, CEOs and even investors. And they all said, you can't do this because reality is all companies are unique and they have their own recipe for success. So we actually started a little bit with that mindset and said, we probably will not find anything here, but we'll find something on funding and all this. But the fact that companies look and behave very different, when you then screen them, they actually, from an analytics point of view, group into these four archetypes was actually a surprise, both to us, but I, I can assure you also to the founders, because it's very difficult to have a conversation with a founder who feels very unique. And basically, you put them into a box and say, you are actually in this archetype. And by the way, in this archetype, on average, of course, you need to do many things to be successful as a company. That's beyond doubt. But if you're in this archetype, you should probably expect this type of funding. You should probably not do M&A. You should probably have 50% of your resources in sale and marketing or commercial roles, whereas in others, it's very different. And it doesn't mean that that's a perfect answer for you, but it kind of justifies uh, some of the actions that you do, but also helps you and educates you in your prioritization of scarce resources. And we also learned from some of them that they have used the report also to the investors saying it's actually okay to do fundraising or to do M&A or to say no, if you want deep tech as an example and others. So they are using this as a, let's call it guidance more than anything. There's no silver bullet, of course, but they are actually more common than most of them think and behave. And I can see how that initially could offend an entrepreneur who thinks their vision is one in a million. Yup. Can you talk about whether there was a stronger push towards one or more of the, of the paths or not? You know, which ones 
were more dominant among the thousand tech champions you were looking at? So I think when we look at the data, we found that about 11% of the top thousand uh, European tech champions are network plays. So those are companies like Deliveroo, BlaBlaCar, GSD Takeaway. Um, about 14% are skill plays. Companies like Zalando, like Spotify, like Farfetch. About 45%, so that's a lot more, are product plays, which are companies like Adgen, TeamViewer, UiPath. And about 30% are deep tech plays. So companies like Biontech or Nordfold. And I think what you see is that there are more, let's say, product plays and deep tech plays than skill plays and network plays, which in a way is typical for the European market. Because for the network plays and skill plays, which are more consumer facing, it's logical that the natural barriers of Europe prevent them from growing too fast, too quickly, and also require a significant amount of funding. When we look at the product plays and deep tech plays, which are more business focused, we see that Europe actually is very well positioned um, and has a great number of successful companies in that respect. When you look at the four plays, it can appear very complicated, but these are actually not so complicated when you boil it down. And if we have an overrepresentation on what we would call product and deep tech, that is fantastic for all kinds of things, including the founders and investors, because they actually give premium returns. But from a region, from employment, from welfare, so taxes and other stuff, being overrepresented on product and deep tech is actually a problem for the region. Because for network and scale, you typically employ two to three times more people when you compare even at the same rate, at the same market value and all of that. So if you take a unicorn that is in a network or scale play, they have two to three times more employees than if you're in product or deep tech. Similarly on revenues, a scale play has five to six times more revenue than a product play, just to give you an example. So that means that even though you create great companies, fantastic returns to investors and founders, they will not have the same dent on the world and contribution to society from a pure numerical point of view, of course, the investors pay taxes and all of that, but it won't employ the same amount of people. It won't pay the same amount of income taxes for those people and all that actually drives the welfare systems around the 28 countries in Europe. So even though we have fantastic momentum and fantastic companies, I would argue, in product play and deep tech plays, it, over time, we don't crack the code for network and scale plays and become more ambitious as a region in those type of place, we will not capture the same amount of employment, revenues, and profits that I think will drive the welfare in the next 20 or 30 years. It is actually a quite important conversation from a region point of view. Of course, as an, as an entrepreneur and as a company, you should just do whatever you can to produce fantastic returns and great company. But I actually do believe that uh, we should find ways to incentivize Mm -hmm. Whether or not it's through financial incentives or if it's education and risk-taking and cultural dimensions, we should find ways where we promote network and scale plays to really create truly global champions that create an employment and, and profits. And I would think that why you might see less in the network and scale is the fragmented value pool in Europe and how that can make it challenging in many ways to expand with the kind of pace that a network and a scale business really needs. 
Yes and no. So we have always looked a little bit at the glass half empty, right? Mm-hmm. And we always looked at why is Europe not producing? So we are, we are producing roughly 35% of all the startups in the world, but only 15% of the unicorns. Right. So why is that? There's the market structure, there's talent, there's culture, there's capital, and there's infrastructure. And we always talk about the fragmentation. But I think if we turn it upside down and we say, what about a half full glass here? So if you take market structure, we represent a fairly fragmented landscape and footprint, right? So different languages, you know, red tape, laws and regulation, even customer behavior. But if you turn this around and say, well, in today's world, diversity is actually important. Diversity of thoughts, of diversity of gender, diversity of culture. So if you take the market structure, we are better prepared. Our companies are better prepared to take multicultural, multilingual, multi-regulation setups compared to if you're North America. I understand it's, you can also continue to point around, of course, it's easier if we get full scale in North America and then from there. But we're actually born international. Most of the startups are similarly, I would argue, on talent. We always said, you know, of course, talent is more fluid and mobility is higher if you go into the North American and West Coast. But you know, EU, I, I wouldn't, you know, we, we, are, we have as many developers almost as the US, if not more today, software developers. Of course, the U.S. has two and a half times more venture capital and growth capital than Europe. But honestly, the growth we have seen in VC and growth capital in the last couple of years is exponential. And if you are a fantastic company, even in Europe, you can attract funding from all over the world. So I think it's actually capital is also not really a problem anymore for European companies, if they are good, of course, and they have access. And then the infrastructure, I think the whole notion around the Silicon Valley hub I think it's also fading a bit. Now, mm-hmm. now I'm having a half full class, I know that. But it's actually the super hops that has drove a lot of the innovation and startup communities and real talent pools in the US. If you play the movie forward five, 10 years, I think it will become less relevant because mm-hmm. we, we are more fluid in how we work together and we can work from remote and we can do many things. So I actually think in 2022 and onwards, a relative strength is increasing in Europe as a region. There's still a problem on culture. So I think there's something on founders and the ambition they have. The risk appetite in the US and also in China is significantly higher than the average European founder. And that we still need to work on. But the other four constraints that we typically have highlighted are increasingly disappearing. So I think that we have a level playing field if we look in 2022, I realized the last 20 years, the data I described before has, is not proving this, but the situation is different today than it was uh, five years ago. That's great to hear. I agree with Kim. And, and one of the things that is highlighting this, this change in momentum for Europe is also that the investments in Europe are growing significantly for VC and growth equity. And mm-hmm. also returns over the last couple of years for VC and growth equity in Europe have actually been better than the returns in North America and uh, to some extent in Asia which is showing the, the changing dynamics of, of what we just described of the last 20 years. Right. And that becomes a virtuous cycle. If the, the returns are better, then the funding just continues to increase. And that structural issue, which might have been more relevant five years ago in terms of a deficit, is not such an issue anymore. Let's talk briefly about the research about the most successful companies, the unicorns in Europe. You guys, you got some insights on how long it takes to reach unicorn status in Europe and how much funding it takes to reach unicorn status and revenue. Can you give us some sense of those findings? 
when we looked at the data, we saw that uh, most Czech companies reach unicorn status within 10 years of founding. That differs very much over the four archetypes that we described before. I think that for network plays, this is by far the quickest. Funding amounts that go in are relatively high and evaluations go up relatively quickly. The companies that are slowest to reach a unicorn status are the deep tech plays. So these are the companies that require massive research, that require building technological solutions, filing for patents, that require hiring top university talent. And here there's much more funding that goes in up front. Uh, and the value uh, of those companies is actually pretty high in Europe, but comes over a later period of time. And that is, I think, the big difference that we saw. And the scale plays and product plays sit in between those extremes. Right. And in terms of the success factors for each? We found actually some quite distinct success factors for the different plays. Now, for the network plays, it was focusing on winning local networks one by one rather than losing in too many. As we talked about before, the market structure of Europe is pretty fragmented and trying to win too many markets at once is proven to be a losing factor. For the skill plays, it's really on over-indexing on commercial roles, which is sales and marketing, FTE, to reach success as early as possible. Uh, M&A proved to be a very distinct factor in providing for success, especially for network and skill players, where more M&A tended to relate to more growth and more success. For product plays, it's really starting with a superior hook product and moving to full suite only later. And for the deep tech plays, we saw a very clear correlation with success and their ability to hire talent from the top tier universities. Those are five of the key success factors that we found in our research. Kim, you've talked about how the structural barriers that folks have traditionally talked about are not such obstacles any longer, but culture still is. I'm wondering if the issue of successful startups in Europe moving their businesses to the U.S., is that still an issue that you see out there? And what can be done to make that happen less often? So I think there will always be companies that look to the U.S. because it's just a big part of the economic profit in the world. So it's a very homogeneous market, same language, same currencies. So of course, we shouldn't prevent European startups to look to the U.S., whether they move there ultimately or not, that's a separate conversation. But I think the notion that we saw a few years ago, and it's actually not that long ago, that if you brought in American investors, the investors typically had a very strong preference, let's call it that, for these companies to move headquarter, but also focus on the US as a core market for this company. And I would say five, 10 years ago, eight out of 10 of the companies that attracted American VC or growth capital ended up moving over there in some way, shape or form, also with the intellectual property and everything. That we no longer see. So today, if a US investor comes into a fantastic company in Europe, they leave it to the founder and the management team to actually judge whether or not if the opportunity is big in the US, of course, they should do it. But if they actually think that there's a better white space in Spain or Italy or Germany, for that matter, then they allow the company to do exactly that. At least the founders we talk to are being less pressured to go to the US, which was uh, the dominant factor a few years ago. And today is much more rational and reasonable. Also, VC and growth equity funds are actually trying to diversify themselves also from a regional perspective. So that it is no longer just a 
a US-centric uh, logic. So, so I actually feel that this is a non-event in 2022. When you talk to the startups and the investors in Europe, is the mood more optimistic these days? Does it reflect more of the glass half full perspective that we were discussing earlier? I would say some of them, right? So I, I think there's two things that they are very excited about. Of course, it's on the multiples on that. But I, we actually have seen almost 500 new unicorns in 2021. Wow. Which is amazing, right? So if you look at the last couple of years, we have roughly produced somewhere between 100 and 200. Um, uh, in 2021, it was 500. So that in itself, of course, is a motivation for everyone. And people are seeing that it is actually possible and doable to conquer the country, the region, the globe, whatever it is that their ambition and inspiration is. On the other hand, which is also a positive thing, I actually see the flexibility on talent and the ability to attract talent and mobility of talent is much more excited towards some of these startups and scale-ups, especially in the tech sector. And uh, where you can say uh, many years ago, most people wanted a real career and you know a, a real big corporate. You're actually seeing now a, more, a little bit more a diverse picture of what people have of ambitions with their career. And there's actually a lot of fantastic talent that is being deployed into the startup and scale-up. So I think if you combine those two, basically a lot of success with a lot of talent there's also a cultural dimension to this that is increasingly accepted to start your own company and become an entrepreneur and all that. I actually think that the atmosphere and the confidence and the momentum is stronger and higher than ever. Yeah. In terms of sort of common traits found in the most successful companies, what did you see? And in particular, what did you see in terms of the verticals uh, or industries that were the most prevalent among these thousand most successful companies? In terms of verticals that are most successful, what we saw in our research is that, uh, as discussed, network and skill players, which are much more focused on e-commerce and consumer and on marketplaces, were less often part of the top thousand. And companies that were more often part of the top thousand are companies that do B2B SaaS, that do fintech, that do biotech, or that do, to some extent, hardware. Mm. So it's more of the B2B-focused companies and the more research-driven companies rather than the uh, more B2C companies that need to scale very rapidly across borders. So that plays to the, what you talked about earlier in terms of the product and deep tech making up more of the plays. Actually, in some regions and countries, it differs a bit. You actually see more than 90% of the what we would call successful uh, tech companies are in product and deep tech. And of course, there's all kinds of reasons for that. And sometimes when you a sufficiently small sample size, it's influenced, of course, by a few companies. But I think it's interesting that in some markets, you basically say half of the companies are in the product play, which is de facto B2B SaaS and fintech. Mm -hmm. And the other half is in biotech. And of course, I'm simplifying now, but it's an interesting observation. Only in big markets like Germany and UK and a few others, we have a real production of winners and tech champions within Scalar Network. The interesting part is, of course, the US is also tilted to product and deep tech if you look at the volume of the companies. But of course, Facebook and others are very valuable. Um, but it is more so in Europe. It also speaks to the culture and the risk appetite and the funding that we've seen in the last 10 years in Europe just didn't allow to go for too long without producing profits. 
And as a consequence, you end up in the product and the deep tech play because that is a more safe pattern or path to profitability where in the network play and scale play, it's really about, especially scale, about domination. And it can take you 10 years to produce the first positive bottom line. Just one last question, Kim, to close us out. If you look at the horizon five or even 10 years from now, what do you hope for the European tech and startup landscape, what it looks like competitively by then? I actually think that we are producing more innovation, more creativity, fantastic solutions, a lot of talent, more so in Europe now than five, 10 years ago. So I'm actually quite optimistic. But I think the real hope I have, of course, in addition to growth, GDP growth, market cap growth, to basically produce welfare and healthcare and education. So it is a reinforcing thing. Equally important, when we look at, I would say, some of the biggest challenges in the world today around climate, around healthcare systems, I want to make sure that these companies that have fantastic solutions also influence the way we do business on a global scale and don't just focus on a country or, for that matter, a region within Europe. They need to have global reach and actually make a, a, a positive difference in how we do business, but also how we produce healthcare in India and in the US and in Brazil. I think some of the sustainability unicorns that are currently being built and decacorns in Europe, I strongly believe that they can actually make a meaningful difference to the world and they should do that. And we should help them if we can in any way to become successful. So that's my hope and dream for these European startups. Well, that sounds like a great perspective and uh, I certainly share that hope. I think focus on sustainability is key. I just want to thank both of you, Kim and Yap, for taking the time to speak with us today, to have a great conversation. It's an exciting time in Europe, especially in the tech startup scene. Thank you for your time. Thanks for having us. That's the end of our pod for today. Thanks again to Kim Baruti and Yap Riesendorf of McKinsey for speaking with us. A big thanks, as always, to our amazing McKinsey on Startups production team, Molly Carlin, Polly Noah, Sid Romtree, Myron Shurgan, and Katie Zamorowski. And finally, thank you for listening. We hope you'll join us again for McKinsey on Startups. This has been McKinsey on Startups, hosted by Daniel Eisenberg. We welcome your feedback, so please rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. Hope you join us next time for more broad global perspectives on the challenges and opportunities for accelerating growth. Thanks for listening.